you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know you probably thought last week was um, a touchy subject, but this is actually the passage I've been dreading ever since deciding to preach 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7. So here we are today. Um, it's really an open discussion about an intimate and delicate subject, and I can promise you any parents that are here today, I'm not trying to make your ride home in the car uncomfortable or difficult. It's just the next passage <laughs> that we're going to be dealing with today. So I'll, I'll do my best to, to spare you blushes and mine as we work through the material but uh, we need to work through the material, not the least of which, because if you don't think that your children or your neighbors or the people sitting next to you um, are being, they're being bombarded every day by, uh, hey, can you bring the house lights up just a little bit? And also there's something with my mic, I don't know, I'm, I'm hearing reverb or something, but um, um they're being bombarded every day from television screens and the internet, social media, and from friends and peers, a very different uh, picture of what sex and sexuality look like. And so um, if you don't realize that, you're not really paying any attention to our culture. And we need badly to hear in our particular cultural moment clear teaching on um, sex and sexuality from the Word of God. Clearly, this is a major battlefield in our culture today. It's a spiritual war, and Satan is infiltrating, and he comes at us from every direction. And so we, we need the Word of God to speak to this subject after having spent part of chapter 5 and most of chapter 6 uh, dealing with sexual immorality in different ways, distorted and perverted by sin, Paul turns to chapter number seven, where now he gives us a positive picture. And he gives, um, he's given us a negative picture, and now he's going to give us positive correctives, and he offers a positive picture. Now, if you remember, there were two extremes that the Corinthian church was prone to uh, to fall prey to. And Paul addressed these, one of them, at the end of chapter number seven. Some of the members of the Corinthian church whose view of, of uh, intimacy was liberal and unconstrained, they were literally visiting temple prostitutes and in this, in this you know, big pagan city that they lived in. And this is what they were saying. They were saying, all things are lawful. You remember that? All things are lawful. Basically, what they're saying is anything goes. And then there was another group that seemed to be acting in reaction to them. As a matter of fact, they were taking the other extreme, and their slogan was, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not a very catchy slogan, is it? I don't think it was very popular back then either, but, uh, but that sums up their teaching. There's two extremes. There's the one kind of unguarded promiscuity, and on the other hand, there was a, like a prudish hostility towards intimacy altogether. 
They saw it as, as dirty and, and unworthy of, of a Christian and always to be avoided. But taken together, if you take chapter 6 and 7 together, they present a Christian view of intimacy that actually defies both extremes. And holding out to us instead a beautiful picture of this union within the bonds of, of Christian marriage that is at once affirming and even celebratory of um, of, of intimacy while at the same time locating it within a God-given bounds. And so with that, let's stand together as we read our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the first five verses. Verse number one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is their quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Once again, for the, Lord, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I, I think a lot of people would expect a, a scripture to have a prudish treatment of intimacy. You know, 10 reasons you shouldn't be intimate by Paul the prude or something like that. But that's not at all what we find in these opening five verses, is it? Here we find a positive, deeply affirming view of intimacy within the bonds of Christian marriage. And he's going to give us three ways to think about this whole um, this, this whole uh, teaching of sex and sexuality, and we need to get a hold of it. And so he lays out three things, and the first one is that this is protection. It's protection from temptation. Remember that these Corinthian believers were right in the middle of a profoundly hedonistic society, does that sound familiar? And some of them, not unlike some of us, found it very hard to resist the gravitational pull to be um, permissive and, and to fall into that anything goes kind of mentality, that, that permissiveness of the, of the culture. But there were others, as we have already noted, that overreacted and the pendulum swung the exact opposite direction. And they were saying it was good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, period. No sex. We're Christians. That's the path of godliness. That was their point of view. Now, if you look at this passage down to verses 6 and 7 and look just, just a little bit ahead of where we read today, Paul is going to argue that celibate singleness is a particular gift of God, and he gives it to some people, some people but not all people, and so we need to understand that. In verse number two, and again in verse number five, Paul is very clear that attempting celibacy without the gift and without the call of God 
is, is uh, and to live a single life is actually exposing yourself to temptation and sin. Verse number two, look at verse number two again. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Look at verse number five. Uh, married couples, Paul says, you are not to neglect sexual intimacy except for a season, only then by mutual agreement. And they're to come back together again. Notice why. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so neglecting intimacy, this union within marriage, will actually expose yourself to all sorts of temptation. And Paul is saying that a major defense given by God against sexual sin is this intimacy, and God ordained it, and this is the way it ought to be. In the face of the Corinthian adultery and fornication, we have verse number two, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage, Paul says, is the only appropriate venue for such intimacy. And within that context, uh, God ordained that intimacy should strengthen and protect each partner from temptation of the devil, who, by the way, twists and distorts it into something that's selfish and, and perverse and shameful. Now let's, let's face it, this is a great spiritual battlefield in our culture today, is it not? It is. It's one of Satan's favorite avenues of success, and I believe that he has had a very high success rate. And I'm not talking about just outside the church, I'm talking about inside the church as well. He's had a high success rate at snaring many, many people who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so Paul is saying that healthy intimacy within marriage is a vital defense ordained by God against Satan's attacks. And so that's the first thing that we need to see here is that this is protection. A healthy, uh, intimate life within a loving Christian marriage is part of a Christian's armor in a spiritual war against the enemy of our souls and it's a battle that we're engaged in every single day so protection second thing that he says is that there is a mutual responsibility look at verses three and four the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband but the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Now, it's crucial that we tackle these verses to notice both sides of Paul's teaching here. This is very important. If we fail to do this, we will distort the message badly and even dangerously. And when we understand what Paul is saying, we will see that it's actually quite revolutionary when you compare it to the context in which he was writing. Now, I want you to notice first in verse number three, Paul addresses husbands about the conjugal rights of the wife. Now, that flies directly in the face of Jewish tradition and also the, the culture, the Greco-Roman culture in which they, they lived. 
in the culture, the Greco-Roman culture of the day, the husband's rights were above the wife's rights every single time. Uh, I read a lot about that in the last two weeks. It's astounding how, how um, repressive it was towards the woman, the wife, in, in the society. And so what he says is revolutionary. And he says the same thing applies for the wife regarding her husband. Each is to understand the other has rights in this whole area. And he places an obligation upon us to think of the rights of the other. And this is important. Remember the, the, the Shema and Jesus says the great commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And the second is likened to it, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And in marriage, it's the loving your neighbor part in marriage is to think of the rights of the other rather than to stand on our perceived rights and make demands of our partner. I find in marital counseling that most problems, uh, presenting problems in counseling are over the same topics. You want to know what they are? They are, number one, money. Actually, number one, if you want to rank them, would be forgiveness. That's bottom line, the, the, the topic that always comes up. Number two, money. And number three, sex. Over and over and over, they become points of friction and tension in the marriage. And Paul here is actually helping us to understand why sex and sexuality might be one of those major points of friction. When one partner demands his or her rights at the expense of the other, pain, grief, tension, and distance intrudes upon that relationship. And Paul gives absolutely no room for that sort of behavior here. Instead, he is saying that our attitude ought to be one of service. We, we are to serve our partner we are to give to them for their sake rather than demand what we believe is our due. And so he says in verse number four, look at verse number four. He says the wife is not to have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now if we left it there, we would be clearing the way for all sorts of abuse, wouldn't we? But look at what he says. He says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own, own body, but the wife does. Now, this is important for us to understand the culture in which he's pushing back. The culture is a patriarchal society where the woman is treated as a virtual second-class citizen. And in that culture, that's an amazing statement. He's pushing back hard against the culture today. If if I had, if I could talk to you one-to-one, -one, I would show you some of the sources I read, whether they're Greek philosophers or Roman uh, philosophers and Roman uh, um, authorities and what they said about the women. The women were basically barely above property, especially um, most women, but the wives barely above property. It's, it's a terrible thing that was going on and so what Paul's saying here is revolutionary. And by the way, I will say this much. One of the accusations 
that the empire made against the early church is that they were trying to foment rebellion by treating women equally as, as men, okay? Now, the Bible is not egalitarian, but the Bible is complementarian in the way it looks. And when you're complementarian, you treat your spouse because they're made in the image of God. We're both the same before God, right? And so I better get back to my notes here. But it's amazing, the statement. Neither partner has absolute authority over themselves, and neither partner has absolute authority over one another. Paul even says that, that, that we need to be seeking the best for our spouse at all times. What does he say in verse 5? He says, do not deprive one another. Now, this is a really fascinating word, that word deprive. Deprive, uh, deprive in the ESV. Some of you, your, your translations might say defraud. And the word means to defraud or to steal or to remove something that's clearly somebody else's. It's a debt. It's a debt owed to your partner. And so intimacy in marriage is a debt that you owe to your partner, not one that is owed to you. That's completely opposite thinking, probably even in our own uh, culture. It's a sacred obligation designed by God for the good of both the partners in the marriage. Now, Paul is teaching us that ordinarily, intimacy within marriage is a Christian duty. It's a debt that we owe. It's, it's uh, and by the way, by the way that he speaks about it, there's something profoundly Christ-like here, and that is it's a pattern of mutual service, self-giving that Paul talks about. And what we need to think about, and I love this picture, when I do marital counseling, one of the first things I hit is Ephesians chapter 5, because Christ is the model of self-giving. What did he do? He gave himself up for the bride. And I always talk to the men and tell the men, you give yourself up for the bride just like Christ did for the church because he gave his very life. Her priorities, her best interests are your priorities. And that's what Christ did. He sacrificed. And so here's this beautiful picture. Christ didn't stand on his rights. What was Christ's right? To be worshipped, right? That's what, we, that's what we owe to him. That's his right. And he gave that right up to come down and to be sacrificed for us. And so as a pattern and a picture, we don't stand on our rights either in marriage, but we voluntarily um, surrender them for the good of our partner. Getting kind of quiet in here. And that was his pattern throughout his whole earthly ministry. Christ would surrender his prerogatives. If you, Philippians chapter 2 says, taking on the form uh, of a man, of a slave for the sake of the church, emptying himself. That's the gospel pattern that Paul is saying then in marriage. The gospel, by the way, 
And, and I used to have a lot of people argue with me about, well, you know, the gospel is just for salvation. Why do you keep going back to the gospel? Because the gospel is practical for every area of life. And marriage is one of those gospel applications. This topic that we're talking about today, we apply the direct principles of the gospel to, don't we? How practical is the gospel? Paul is saying then that even within intimacy, within marriage, there is a self-giving for the good of the other, a surrendering for the good of the other, not demanding, not standing on what we perceive to be our due. Intimacy, Paul says, is a beautiful thing, part of God's design that, that dramatizes and pictures the very gospel itself. And when it's rightly ordered in God's economy, it's, it's protection, and secondly, it's mutual responsibility. And thirdly, it's a commitment. Notice verse number five. It's a commitment. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In, in our sexually broken world, many of us are carrying deep scars. Just a fact, isn't it? Some of us enter marriage with all kinds of emotional baggage. Abusive, horrible, horrible abusive behavior towards children by the very people they should have been protected by. Don't think that doesn't bring a scar into the marriage. And the gospel is teaching us that when we enter with all this emotional baggage and all these vulnerabilities and all these wounds and fears, sometimes our marriages will become disordered. And, and um, it, they become disordered because we take those previous scars and we don't live according to God's pattern. And given these complexities, there are various and valid circumstances in which intimacy and marriage may not be appropriate for a season, right? Anyone who takes Paul's teaching here in these five verses as warrant to demand what it should be given as an act of loving to service or service distorts scriptures in dangerous ways. There is no place for abusive demands that sometimes find their way even into Christian marriages. I would say in my counseling over the years, I've run into horribly abused, abusing people who call themselves believers that um, in within marriage, Every, everything looks great at church, but when you get home, there is just a horrible situation going on at home, and it has to be dealt with. It has to be taken care of. There's neither is there any place for any kind of manipulative withholding of the union or selfish or spiteful ends that, that sometimes finds its way even into Christian marriages. So I have a headache is not an excuse. Trying to lighten the mood just a little bit here, okay? You can send that email to office at Provident. No, I'm just kidding. The one exception that Paul mentions is 
He says, do not deprive one another. That's the normal pattern for a healthy marriage. And um, if you look at the text, it's really fascinating to me. Verse number five, because what he does, it's very, it's, it's very challenging. He says that a couple may break off their intimacy for a season only by mutual agreement. Notice why. For a sustained season of prayer. A limited time has the idea of a season of some significance with limits to it. There's some unusual circumstances, something serious that's calling the husband and wife for a sustained season of focused prayerfulness. And so the best way to think of this is how the Bible calls for fasting and prayer. Now, what are you to do when you fast? Is, does fast itself have some special significance? Answer is no. The idea in Scripture is that when you fast, that normal time when you would take physical food, you are instead spiritually focused. And so those hunger pains that you hear in your stomach or feel in your stomach remind you that man doesn't live by bread alone but by the very word of God and communion and fellowship with God. And so you pray with him. And the same thing is true in marriage. A husband and wife, at those times when that desire is aroused and they may be covenanted to a certain fasting of this um, sacred act, they go to the Lord and say, Lord, um, just as... um, well, they'll, they'll go to the Lord and they'll pray to the Lord and remind God that he has a higher claim on their bodies than they do, okay? So, the, so Jesus has prior claim on your marriage. Your marriage is for him. And so it reminds me when I think about this verse to ask husbands and wives, husbands, because you're the head of your household, Do you pray together? Do you find ways in which to give honor to Jesus Christ in your marriage? Would someone who's a non-Christian looking in on your home, if they could be a fly on the wall, would would they observe from the way that you behave and from the rhythm of your life that you are children of God for whom Jesus has first claim more than anything else and any other person? Is your marriage a distinctly Christian marriage? Does Jesus Christ reign as Lord between you and over you in your home? These are very serious questions to ask because that's what is being taught in verse number five, isn't it? Distinctly Christian. Let me end this way. I am I'm persuaded, I guess, for lack of a better term, that one of the best witnesses that we can offer to a confused, soul-sick society that is it's on the freight train towards chaos, sexual chaos, and confusion, that one of the best ways that we can bear witness is to display a humble, servant-hearted 
gospel-shaped, tender, intimate, lifelong, enduring Christian marriages where there is no manipulating, no controlling, no abusive demands. Instead, where there's a joyful intimacy and sexual wholeness, which, by the way, in Paul's mind, contributes and is part of um, sexual holiness, pleasing in the sight of God, honoring to him. And while the world thinks that we are sexually repressed, that we're prudes, obsessed with the sex that we're not allowed to have, how do we need to recover a, a biblical vision that delights God's wonderful design for the joyful union of one man and one woman in marriage? We begin not only um, to believe, but to live it by the grace of God, and that's, that's how we become countercultural. It's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to see the way the gospel reorders our lives, isn't it? It applies to every area of our life. And the world needs to know that it can reorder theirs as well by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have these kind of marriages and we follow God's commands, there will be no abuse no distortions, no manipulata- manipulations, none of the chaos that we see going on in our, in our society, none of the, the pain, horrific pain and abuse that goes on in so many families in our society today. May we recover the gospel vision of intimacy in marriage. Let us stand together as we close in prayer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gospel. It is profound how that the gospel shapes the way every aspect of our life is is ordered, including the sexual bonds within marriage and abstinence without marriage. Lord, I pray that that we will take the gospel's um, teaching into our marriages so that Christ may be glorified, so that the world may know that there is a difference that the gospel makes a difference in every part of our lives. Lord, I do want to say this. No doubt, people hearing today's sermon, whether in this service or the next one, there are some that are guilty of the things that we talked about today. May you grant to them repentance. May they humbly ask for forgiveness from their partner and may they be completely changed. And for those whose marriage displays this to the best of their ability, may they thank you and praise you that you have given them such a marriage. In Christ's name, amen.